Welcome back to our weekly podcast where Alistair Doyle and I present the latest news about environment, nature, wildlife, climate change, science, or basically just anything related to what we believe that you would like to hear. So you can join us during the live recording, and that's every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. So that's 9 in the evening in most of Europe, that is 8 in the evening in the UK, that is noon in the U.S. Pacific Coast, and Unfortunately, that's like three o'clock at night for those that live in Southeast Asia and would love to join the live recording. But not to worry, one of the reasons why I chose call in is that once we have recorded the podcast before a live audience, we need only 10 minutes or so before we post it as a permanently available podcast on call in. So anyone can listen to it whenever it is most convenient, but I love it to see those people that uh, joined us now during the live event, because then it's not just, just the two of us talking. It's nice to have you here. And towards the end of this podcast, you are most welcome to ask questions. Welcome, Alistair. How's life on the other side of the Atlantic? Because I hear that Northern Europe is bracing for the storm Eunice, right? Yeah, they're battening down at the moment. I'm I'm up in Oslo, which is going to be grazed by this storm tomorrow, but it's uh, tomorrow evening. But it's it's going to batter the southwest of the UK, where I was born, down in the southwest corner of the United Kingdom of England, where this storm is going to come in. There's been a, a red warning issued by the UK Met Office today, which is the worst level of a storm you can have, and it's 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 you know people are being told to stay indoors when they can. Um, there's all sorts of warnings about flying debris. The army is on standby. The government's having an emergency meeting. Uh, this could mean winds of up to 100 miles an hour. That's about 160 kilometers an hour, which is gusts. That's way up into hurricane strength winds. Um, so it's a frightening, a frightening sort of ominous uh, storm that's coming in here off the Atlantic. Um, you know, they can uproot trees, uh, a lot of the tourist attractions are going to be closed tomorrow. The, the London Eye, the big thing you can go around in a, um, up in, in London is going to be closed. Legoland, you know, they're not quite confident that the bricks will hold together in <laughs> Legoland. But, they're not built for those kind of forces. <laughs> not, not built for hurricanes, I think, yeah. So railway lines are closed and there's delays to all sorts of transport. So it's, it's a, you know, huge waves coming too, potentially. Um, then it's going to blow over into northern Europe. You know, it'll be hitting the Netherlands too. Um, yeah, including Germany. including my house on the island. I was looking <laughs> on the map where we're going to see the worst wind forces, and that is kind of exactly where my house is. So I'm safely here in Ottawa, but I I hope that uh, the tiles will stay on the roof. Yeah, my sister who lives down in the southwest of the UK still lives in a, an old mill house. She'll be worried about the um, the rain that can, she'll be having to open up the sluices to make sure that the the river near her goes avoids flooding her house, which is a, which is a problem there. I haven't spoken to her, but I'm, I know she'll be doing that. She wow. does it often when these red warnings come. And um, yeah, so it's, it's what I read is that this might be the worst storm in thirty years. Um, uh, there's, there's kind of uh, since I follow this stuff a lot on social media, uh, what you normally see is there's a standard pattern that first you see all the warnings uh, about how bad this storm is going to be, and then you see the very first reporting on the damage and the victims. Sometimes you see some fake news of somebody who wants to get attention, so takes a hurricane from Florida or something and posts that as as uh, the, the the first Eunice pictures. And then uh, you get the reporting on the real damage and the victims. And then the standard pattern is that a day later, the question will be posed, is this storm the result of climate change? So just, just you can put it in your calendar now, that question will come. And of course, I will wait for the experts, what, what they will say. But since most listeners are in the United States and they might think about hurricanes, those are relatively uncommon in Europe because hurricanes are born in tropical Atlantic waters and uh, th these are occasionally diverted northwest by the jet stream, but gradually they just lose their strengths as soon as they hit colder water. So by the time they arrive in Europe, they may no longer 
technically be be classified as as a hurricane and they don't make that many that much uh, damage but it can still cause a lot of rain and and heavy winds and and every year we we see some of those remnants of of hurricanes and one of the developments that we may see is that now that our climate is changing and the we have warmer waters in the North Atlantic that could lead to hurricanes retaining their intensity over over much greater distances. And it might also increase the frequency with which such superstorms might, might occur in Western Europe. Um, of, of course, I realize we're now not in the American hurricane season where we're actually in, in, in the opposite, uh, the, the, the most quiet moment uh, uh, from a hurricane point of view in the U.S., but what do you think that the experts will say in in the next few days about this storm? Would there be a link to to climate change, or is this just you know storms have always been there, and this is just another one? Yeah, it's really difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, the, the attribution of extreme weather linking it to climate change has, has got a lot better in the last few years, but it's going to take a while, I think, and. Um, Storms are quite difficult to to talk about here. Of course, we're outside of the hurricane season in the in the Atlantic, so this is a winter storm. Um, you know, but climate change has loaded the dice towards this type of type of storm happening. There's the jet stream is much more wavy than it used to be, and there can be cold cold air spilling out of the Arctic coming down south and generating the sort of meeting the, the warmer air from the Atlantic. And this just skews things over. So it, it bad, it, it's making winter storms around the UK um, and around Europe a lot, a lot worse in recent years. You know, this might just be a freak storm that's happened throughout history. But as you say, but it, uh, they seem to be becoming more frequent. Um, there's, you know, that people are saying this could be the south of England's worst battering since the, the Burns Day storm in January 1990 in which uh, you know, almost 50 people died. Um, we had a, the last red warning like this one was um, actually last, just last November, uh, where there were strong winds on the east coast of Scotland and northeast England. Um, and then we had the beast from the east back in 2018, when a vast of swathe of cold, freezing air blew in from, uh, from Eastern Europe. And uh, that was also air sucked down from the Arctic at an unusual time of, time of year. You know, so the people talk about, you know, the, technically they're talking about um, cyclogenesis um, uh, as storm units rapidly intensifies some of the meteorological experts. Cyclogenesis just simply known more more as a, as a weather bomb. Um, so weather bomb hitting. It's yeah. a weather bomb <laughs> about to be dumped on the southwest of the UK, which is a bit rotten, isn't it? Let's yeah, hope, all predictions let's everybody sound. stays safe. Yeah. yeah. Sounds pretty um, bad, these predictions. You were saying 160 kilometers an hour. I was trying to imagine. That's like you're driving on a highway uh, far above the speed limit at 160 kilometers an hour, and then you open the the roof in your window and you stick your head out. That must be about that feeling. I don't think that's going to be very <laughs> nice. Exactly. I, I see in the meantime that we have uh, quite some new listeners, uh, which is nice to see on the live broadcast because that took a bit of time to to develop a live audience i'm, I'm glad we can uh we we see that now and um uh, there there's a lot of improvements now on uh on the call-in app that was launched today uh that's really exciting to see um there's there's uh so so the most important upgrade is probably that the call-in app that was until now only available on the iphone has now been launched uh, for Android phones as well. And this is something that many listeners have been asking for, uh, including at least one that I see on the list of people listening now. So it seems to be working well. Um, And another innovation is that uh, very soon you can now listen to these podcasts on Spotify and the Apple podcast as well. So you don't have to go either to the call-in website or to the call-in app but you can just uh, listen on Spotify where I normally listen to my other podcast before uh, the birth of uh, Call In. That was only last September. So tomorrow, just making a bit of um, uh, an announcement for my next show already, uh, tomorrow at noon Eastern time, so simply set just three hours earlier than we started today, 
I'll be joined with Charlie Weiser from Colin, and Charlie uh, will talk about all these upgrades that uh, Colin uh, launched today. I think that is really exciting and will really give a boost um, to uh, this app. Um, so uh, back to this. This was a bit of a distraction. It was just, just because I saw so many people uh, joining us uh, live. But let's, let's get back to the stories of this week. Uh, you... you said to me you wanted to uh, to talk about a puzzle for the audience tell me <laughs> that's right alex um i've got a sound that i like to play to everybody to the listeners and just just try and see what you think this sound is i'll play it a couple of t- two or three times it's three seconds long and uh here we go listen closely and try and figure out what it is I guess it's some kind of uh, musical instrument or, or maybe it's a piano tuner or something. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good guess. But in fact, it's a boing made by a whale. In this case, a, a minke whale off Australia recorded by scientists. So minke whale is a small type of whale. Um, and it's, it's, it's part of a sort of an underwater chorus that's going around, along in the oceans that scientists are trying to sort of figure out. Um, it's only about 20 years ago that scientists identified these whales as the source of this boing sound. Um, and they're still unsure what they're saying or how, you know, here it is again. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's a minky whale. So there's another one here, another puzzle for everybody, please. A, a similar sound. And again, try and figure out what um, this one is. It sounds like an animal digging in the ground or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or somebody snoring, maybe. Yeah, it's sort of a, a bee operating a saw or something. Yeah, but um, in fact, this one's a, called a paddle crab. That's a type of crab that lives off on the beaches of Australia. They look like pretty typical crabs that you can see on the beach when you're on holiday, about 15 centimetres across, and the sort of ones that would might nip your toes on the beach. But uh, they make these sounds that the scientists call rasp, zip, and bass. Base sounds are sometimes linked to mating and courtship. Um, maybe it's about finding food. No, nobody really knows. So these are just a couple of sounds in a, in a new, what they call a global library of underwater biological sounds. That's a bit of a mouthful, but they, they make it into an acronym, GLUBS. <laughs> GLUBS. GLUBS. This is launched by marine experts today to help monitor how, how life in the seas is changing. So they've released a whole sort of a, a track list. It's like a Spotify of the oceans of music from, from around the world, from the coral reefs to, to these minke whales in Australia to up in the North Atlantic. Um, this is a provisional library, a provisional library of sounds from the seas. They're hoping to expand it to, to rivers and to lakes and they include an awful lot of things they don't even know where the, where the sounds are coming from, especially from coral reefs. They've got um, a sort of a, a, a symphony of, of weird sounds taking place across a coral reef. They don't even know what sort of fish or, or whatever there is. Um, so this has been led by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts in the United States. So I was lucky enough to visit there um, well, a decade ago now. What a wonderful That's a, place. It's an amazing yeah. initiative. I, I, I love it. I think actually some composer might someday use those sounds to, to make a real symphony <laughs> out of it. And uh, But yeah, these these sounds in the ocean, I remember hearing whale sounds uh, earlier on, not like your boing, but more, much more singing. And uh, th- those, are, those are kind of overlooked in, in recordings because um, I have, for instance, this app uh, called BirdNet. And when mm. you're in a forest and you hear a strange bird, you just put on the app and it tells you which bird it is and then links it to Wikipedia or something. It gives a lot of information um, about uh, about the bird. Uh, but there's nothing for fish or other 
marine life. And uh, so, so this is this is a great initiative. And I think it was just too difficult to identify where all these sounds came from. And um, what, what I read about GLUPS, which I think is a lovely acronym because it sounds like some kind of animal sound, a GLUP. <laughs> and um, there's now about a quarter of a million known marine species. And uh, they, they, scientists think that all 126 mammals emit uh, uh, sounds uh, and, and uh, humpback whales make, make beautiful songs. Um, and some of them change over time. So in, in, in one part of the ocean, you hear a different sound than somewhere in, in another ocean. So they, they speak like different languages in a way, uh, if we could only understand it. And then there's at least 100 uh, invertebrates uh, like crab and, and sea urchins uh, that also make sounds. And, uh, and about a thousand of the world's uh, 34,000 known fish species uh, and are, are making sounds and, and, and likely thousands more. It's still not, not researched well enough. So for this library, this GLUPS, uh, 17 experts from nine countries uh, want now to collect the, the fishy chorus uh, on a single platform. And they're hoping to use professional scientific gear and hydrophones, and, uh, but also GoPros and, and phone apps that are used by scuba divers and, and beachgoers. Um, so it's an exciting development. Uh, it will be a great way to, to monitor the oceans and rivers and lakes and, and, and also to see how these sounds change over time. Uh, just like our language is changing over time. And, and some fish have different accents or dialects uh, across the sea. It just depends where you are and when you uh, record it. So I think this is fascinating research to follow. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, timing too, because we've had the pandemic, of course, and they've, the, you know, scientists have said this has created an anthropause, a pause in human activities across the planet. So you know, people have noticed that they said that they're seeing noticing birdsong more than than the normal, and this has meant a lot fewer ships around. It means a lot less underwater noise. You know, the fewer, fewer cargo ships plowing across the oceans. There's supply disruptions in um, <laughs> that, that we all suffer from. The fish are having a great time with this lack of lack of noise. There are fewer tourists buzzing in boats over coral reefs or disturbing whale songs when they're out on whale safaris you know the whales are, are probably having a great time a whale of a time um so it's a boost for scientists and for marine life yeah i i can imagine it must be must be horrible because sound can is so well transported into water so if you're a whale and you're you're trained to communicate with other whales over enormous distances and then you know as humans are going to be busy there with uh, drilling and making sounds etc uh, must be horrible and and we don't know what effect this noise really has on fish and other marine life and then it's very difficult to ask them of course okay. uh, and there's the the seismic testing for oil and gas that is extraordinary noise. So they, they, they really deliberately make noise to, to find out the, the, the structure of, um, of, 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 the, of, the, of the ground underneath the ocean to find out where you can find oil and gas. Uh, so they, they, these submarines sending out these deafening pings and, and big engines uh, must be deafening for them. And uh, just imagine you're a whale uh, a male whale singing a song because you want to impress the, the lady uh, males. Um, I suppose that that may fall completely flat uh, if if all the females are deafened by by all these passing ships. Those those poor whales. <laughs> Imagine what we're doing to them. Yeah, like giving a concert with your microphone turned off, right, and nobody can hear you sing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit like that. The 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 ocean covers seventy percent of our planet. Um, uh, if you compare it to what we do on land, we're maybe not so good in conservation efforts on land, but we're much worse in conservation for the ocean. And I think the the good news of the past week was the the One Ocean Summit that met last week in France, and uh, they agreed for a few new steps to to protect life in 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 the seas. 
Yeah, that's yeah. I saw that. that that's really good, isn't it? Well, do you think it's going to make a difference? Are they? Is this a big step forward for for, well, for cooperation? It's always hard to tell, isn't it? So uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell because everybody spins the news, of course, and then poor people like you and me have to try to to read through the lines what 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 the real news is, what the old news is, and what will actually make a difference. But what I what I get from here is that. Uh, the good news is that uh, 30 additional countries have now joined the, the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and, and People uh, launched in, in January 2021. Uh, so there's now 84 countries that aim to protect 30% of the world's land and sea by 2030. Uh, and, and there's uh, a whole in protecting the oceans uh, because two-thirds of the ocean is what we call the high seas. So that is beyond national jurisdiction, far away from land. And there's not a lot of regulation uh, of the middle of the Atlantic or remote areas of the of the Pacific. So t- the 27 countries of the EU uh, joined by 16 uh, third countries they have backed a push to work out by the end of this year an effective and global agreement on the sustainable use of the high seas and the protection of their biodiversity. So that treaty, however, is it's it's already long overdue uh, because of all the unregulated fishing and all the other problems that we see. But uh, I think it's it's. Uh, uh, it's certainly a step in, uh, in in the right direction. Whether the step is big mm-hmm. enough and whether it's timely enough, uh, only only the future can tell. But let's let's support anything that happens uh, in this direction in in a positive way. I would say. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Because the oceans are a real mess, aren't they? We've treated them like a dump for our pollution throughout history, um, and now we've got this problem of. You know, about 9 million tonnes of plastic end up in the ocean every year. Um, 80% of it is coming flowing from coasts and rivers. Um, and we need you know, massive investments to, to improve sanitation and waste processing all around all continents. Well, maybe not Antarctica, I guess. But um, I can't imagine the fish songs are very happy in any parts of the ocean at the moment. Um, we've overfished them. We've polluted them. We've, um, we've messed them up, haven't we? Yeah, I wouldn't be very happy as a fish, uh, knowing that every single minute a full truckload of plastic is being dumped in the ocean. So in in we've been talking now 24 minutes. Imagine 24 trucks dumping plastic in the ocean. If you would film that, uh, you would have 24 trucks standing next to each other and dump a full load of plastic in the ocean. You get an outcry worldwide. It would be a trending topic on Twitter. It would be the the opening issue on CNN. But it happens every minute, and nobody nobody pays any attention because it's so scattered around the world. And uh, so it's yeah. So so that that brings me to the related development. Uh, talking about oceans, this talk about a, a plastics treaty. So on. Um, uh, another announcement, actually, uh, <laughs> uh, for doing so many podcasts nowadays. So on the 7th of March, if you still have your calendars in front of you, uh, Tom Gamach, who you may remember from about a month ago, who spoke about the plastic treaty, he will join me again in this podcast. And I spoke with him last month about the upcoming negotiations about a, 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 a plastic treaty. Did you, did you follow the plastic treaty, Alistair? Yeah, I've been looking into I was actually at a briefing at the Norwegian um, Environment Ministry yesterday because the Norwegian minister will be um, presiding at a meeting in Nairobi at the end of this month, the beginning of next month, where they'll, they'll be working on this. And he, he made the point that, you know, the real problem with plastics is the plastics we don't see. You know, we can yeah. see plastic bags going into the oceans and things, but the real problem is the microplastics, microplastics. broken yeah. down into such small bits that you just don't notice it and it's being eaten up by all sorts you can find it in mussels you can find it in fish you can find it in us you can find it everywhere it's 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 extraordinary in the air so anyway but yeah in the air everywhere yeah. yeah so you know following years of discussion support for a global treaty to stem the tide of plastic pollution is 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 growing you know 75 percent of un member states back the idea 
although you know what that treaty will actually involve is still a little bit vague it's more about standards of um, production and um and, and reuse trying to raise standards for re reuse but but next week um, countries are going to start negotiating two competing resolutions in the lead up to this UN Environment Assembly in Nairobi both of these resolutions call for the establishment of an intergovernmental negotiating committee to start work on a legally binding treaty so it's still talk about talk in a way but this is this could be a big step forward um, there's a there's a resolution by Rwanda and Peru um, sets out an open mandate for the for this negotiating committee that would mean negotiators work on a broad range of issues relevant to plastic pollution as discussions progress uh, Japan has a has another resolution a separate resolution uh, proposes a closed mandate which severely limits what diplomats can consider that would that would significantly undermine the ability of the intergovernmental negotiating committee to prepare an effective treaty but there's there's hope to there's hope that they can merge these two proposals by Rwanda and Peru and the Japanese proposal so they can have that as the basis for talks but there's lots of brackets in all the text which means points of uh, points of um, points of uh, disagreement um, yeah but anyway yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a well-known diplomatic trick that uh, basically summarizes if you can't beat them, join them, uh, which is uh, if you don't want uh, a treaty uh, about plastics, then the best thing you can do is to propose to negotiate about a treaty about plastics. But then you limit the possibilities to talk about it so much that basically you don't get an effective treaty. So. Um, yeah. My vote go to Rwanda and Peru, um, but I'm not in the room. <laughs> Mine too. It's interesting that Rwanda is, is making one of these resolutions when it's a landlocked country as well, isn't it? It's interesting that they're taking the lead there. Good for them. It, that's very interesting. I I don't uh, I I don't know the details too much. I think it's interesting that on another very important environmental issue, water. Rwanda is, uh, speaking on top of my head, one of the three countries in the world. Um, China was another one, and there's one more that I forgot about for the moment. I think it's Turkey, uh, but I'm not sure about Turkey. One of the three countries in the world that uh, voted against uh, the UN water resolution. And uh, the thing that these three countries have in common, Rwanda, China, and the number three, which I guess is Turkey, um, is that they are upstream countries and they don't want to have too many regulations about how much and what they are flowing downstream. So downstream countries are always happy about it. Here we talk about something else because this is uh, the, 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 the problem is mainly uh, for those that live on fish and that live close to the sea. And it's also that most of the runoff is, of course, from uh, from uh, countries on the seaside, especially six countries in uh, East and Southeast uh, Asia. They are, they are the main producers of this, uh, this problem. But we had yeah. promised to talk about bald eagles as well. That's bald what eagles, I said indeed, in a tweet yeah. a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, go for it. This is another study that came out today. Yeah, yeah. Shall, shall I, okay, I'll kick off on the bald eagles because unexpectedly now, and this is a sad story actually, high numbers of bald eagles and also the golden eagles in North America, they get poisoned by eating fragments of lead ammunition used in hunting. There's a connection between guns and North America, of course, uh, that we see also in all kinds of other news. Uh, but uh, a lot of guns in America seem to be also used for hunting. And those bullets, they shatter on impact. So birds that, that scavenge on bits of deer and other game uh, animals left behind by hunters, they get poisoned. So um, the bullet findings, and, and there's a bit of pun here, the bullet findings say that uh, <laughs> this study published, uh, which was published today in the, the Journal of Science, uh, it's, it's, it's a huge... 38-state-wide analysis, um, the researchers quantified lead exposure of 1,200 bald and golden eagles uh, in, in eight years between 2010 and 2018. And they reported that 47% of the bald eagles and 46% of the golden eagles exhibited bone lead concentrations above the thresholds for poisoning considered chronic. 
So that is due to repeated lead exposure. But uh, quite a lot of them also had acute poisoning, indicating that they'd recently eaten a lump of lead. And that was generally higher in winter months when bald and golden eagles commonly scavenge and, and may directly eat from lead fragments from, from ammunition uh, used in, in the hunting season. So this makes birds sick. And it's also a problem for the bird's ability to reproduce, uh, to reproduce. And, and, and based on the thresholds used by uh, veterinary specialists to define a severe clinical poisoning uh, that suggests that the continent-wide population growth rates of these species are now being suppressed. And that is about uh, close to 4% for bald eagles and nearly 1% for golden eagles. So if you see this in the long-term perspective, uh, that uh, may have very negative impacts on the population as well. So this is a very sad story. So a conclusion here, hey guys, do less hunting um, because why would you shoot animals in the first place? But this is, of course, the vegetarian uh, speaking. <laughs> what about you, Alistair? <laughs> I'm not quite a vegetarian, but um, I agree. This is a terrible story. The poor eagles, they're, I don't know, would you like, prefer to eat lead or have your, your songs disrupted by ships passing over your head as a fish? I don't know, it's, it's bad anyway, isn't it? But there, there have been other studies. This, is, this study was good because it, it looked at 38 states. Um, most other previous studies about this have been on just sort of much more local. But there have been much, lots of other studies showing that at least 75 wild bird species in the US have been poisoned by lead ammunition. You know, not only bald eagles, but ravens, endangered California condors, cranes, ducks, swans. Um, on the water birds, waterfowl can often eat this lead shot or fishing sinkers. But fishermen use sort of sinkers just to, to weigh down their, uh, their lures, don't they? Um, lost in lakes and rivers. And these can kill birds too. So, you know, I found out overall in the United States, there's 3,000 tons of lead shot into the environment by hunting every year. And another 80,000 tons, that's a staggering number at shooting ranges, and 4,000 tons lost in ponds and streams and as fishing lures and sinkers. So, you know, as many as 20 million birds and other animals die each year from this lead poisoning. So it's a, it's a big sort of crisis we don't really hear very much about, do we? These are incredible numbers. I mean, we know how bad lead is. We, we've seen that in, in, in the history of the Roman Empire. We've uh, seen it uh, much much uh, more recently in Flint, Michigan. Uh, and then we release 80,000 tons. So that is 80 million kilos uh, of lead uh, every year in the environment uh, well, on shooting ranges, but I mean, that that ultimately ends up in the environment. These are 80 million kilos of lead of something that we know that is poisonous already for 2000 years. That is that is incredible that 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 is allowed. I have no idea about laws about lead. But if you hear this, I mean, the first thing I would do if I would be a policymaker in, in the US, I would say set 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 limits to the amount of lead you can use at, at least use something else. Uh, if you that uh, urgently want to kill uh, animals or want to have fun on a shooting range, which is a completely different uh, way of uh, spending your free time uh, than I normally do, like reading a book or doing something else. Uh, anyway, um, but there's there's positive news as well, because um, in California, they gave the right example by banning lead ammunition. And they knew that it was poisoning hawks and owls and eagles and, and, and those, those amazing California condors that are now back. Um, so we know how to do it as so often with environmental problems. We just don't do it. There's, there's, the good thing is that some other states are considering bans. Uh, and it, it, it seems that the advantage, if you can use that word uh, when you speak about killing animals, the advantage of lead is partly that it does fragment. So it's more fatal. I don't think the uh, animals involved would call this an advantage. 
Um, and it's it's also softer, so it it doesn't damage the the barrel of the gun where it, where it flies out. Um, but it's yeah, it's of course bad for birds and bad for for all those animals, and it can end up in our it can end up in our meat as well. Uh, which is if people look for another reason not to eat meat, which I think I should dedicate a few podcasts to why you shouldn't eat meat. But but this is an additional one uh, to uh, to keep in mind. Um, and um, yeah, then then there are some places are recommending less damaging ammunition like copper, which uh, doesn't uh, shatter, for instance. Yeah, I hope that at the Olympics over in um, China at the moment that they're using they're not using lead bullets in the biathlon, right, where they go around skiing and shooting. If they they should, um, the, uh, I remember here at the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer many years ago that they they deliberately used a different type of ammunition there to to avoid the the bullets ending up in nature. So that that, okay. that was good. Well, we spoke about the Green Olympics, so this is uh, this is this is good for China that they uh, that they did this. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah, so maybe we should turn back to the oceans, uh, where we've got some worrying news this week about sea level rise uh, around the United States. Um, they there's a study, a U.S. government report says that the seas around the United States are expected to rise about 25 to 30 centimeters by 2050. So that's in the course of um, three decades that's more than in the past century um, which is which is really worrying news I mean what, what worried me a little bit about some of the headlines on this was you know they said US could get a century's worth of sea level rise in just three decades um, but of course you know a century's worth last century was already really bad um, seas have been pretty flat for the last two or three thousand years it's only since we started heating up the planet with global warming and greenhouse gases that they've started to rise. And the, the 20 centimeters or so that they rose in the whole of last century um, uh, is, is the worst, biggest rise in two or three thousand years. So, um, you know, I've, I've written about this a lot, of course, in my book, uh, The Great Melt, another uh, personal plug here um, <laughs> about sea level rise. Um, so and they. You know, of course, this means more flooding, um, more flooding around the coast. Um, and it's, it's another call for people to to restrict uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, we could have a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century. And it's because it's not like saying that we could get a century's worth of sea level rise by 2050. This is going to keep on going. It's uh, the thaw of Antarctica of Greenland, of glaciers and the expansion of the of the oceans as the water heats up and gets bigger. Um, it's it's um, it's a worry for the United States, of course, here. Yeah. yeah, and I remember recently in, in the interview I had with uh, Michael E. Mann, uh, he also said that, he said the good news about climate change is that we we know that if we now just change our behavior, that we can, to a very, very large extent, stop global warming and and uh, change everything in just a few years instead of what what we learned a couple of years ago that that there's a kind of delay of about 30 years and he said recent research indicates that that is not at all the case but unfortunately not for everything this is relevant for temperatures but he said things like and the specific example he gave is sea level rise um, that is a much more longer process that we're talking about so anything we do right now as urgently as possible uh, can can uh, reduce the damage of sea level rise and coming from a country that is known by everybody as the low countries um, i'm particularly uh, interested in uh, in this subject and i i always recognize your expertise as writing one of the best books about this uh, subject uh, that's available and one of the things that always surprised me is that if I sit down in a bathtub, I see the water rising on all sides of the bathtub in, with uh, an, an equal amount of centimeters. Um, and while growing older, I suppose that the number of centimeters is rising now that I get in a bathtub. But at least it rises as much everywhere on, on the side of the bathtub. But if you look at the oceans... Uh, that's not at all true. I saw in this this reason there was a lot of publications in the past few days about this. 
that if you look at the United States, for instance, that on the East Coast, they talk about 14 to 18 inches. So for those in the rest of the world, that means uh, something like 35 to 45 uh, centimeters rise by mid-century. So let's take the maximums because if I mention too many numbers, you remember. So it's 45 centimeters on the East Coast. If you then compare it uh, to the West Coast, it is only 25 centimeters. So it's nearly twice as much on the East Coast. And then in, you know, on the Gulf Coast, uh, it's even less. It's it's only 20 centimeters. Uh, although uh, that's not a plea to move to the coastline of Florida because there you have all kinds of different problems, of course. So you, you see all these uh, these different changes, especially the West Coast, uh, the East Coast, sorry, the East Coast of the US uh, seems to be particularly uh, vulnerable. So, uh, yeah, we spoke before about uh, the Doomsday Glacier, um, that, that the, 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 the Swates Glacier, uh, as the official name is, impossible to pronounce for a non-native speaker, uh, that that could, could shatter like a windscreen and that could, could really, um, it's a, it's, it's a kind, it's a kind of tipping point. I mean, once that has shattered, it will not repair. It, it we will see, uh, an, 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 an additional rise uh, in the oceans. And that is a very uh, scary thought, especially since science predicted that it could happen any moment between now and five or 10 years from now. Uh, so, yeah, there's, uh, that's, there's a lot of stories about too much water. There's also stories about uh, too little water. Yeah, um, there's a, a, a severe drought in the American West um, a study this week says that in the last 22 years have been the driest period in at least 1,200 years. Um, this drought began in the year 2000. It's on track to surpass a mega drought in the 1500s. You know, this is a, a mega drought is typically a drought. There's no real definition of, of, I see, but it's a, a drought that lasts at least a couple of decades. Um, so this is, you know, this is all in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, parts of Oregon, Wyoming, and New Mexico, Northern Mexico, some other some other regions, um, and you know this has been covered. I was surprised to see a, a very decent story about this, in, even in the Wall Street Journal, which was um, for for a very long time a bastion of uh, climate skepticism, or they would. Yeah. Tone it seems it they accept so the science now. They, they certainly accept the science on their news pages of the um, of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the Wall Street Journal these days, which is a great breakthrough. It's it's happened for the last few years. It has to be acknowledged, um, but it's it's quite a change from from their editorial stance of a few years ago. Um, and so, and you know, this study estimates that forty two percent. I don't know how they could be that precise of the of this mega drought can be attributed to human-caused climate change. So we'll have studies about Storm Eunice that we discussed at the start. I guess it will give us some sort of um, figure of that, you know, how much how much climate change contributed, whether it was yeah. a factor or not here. Yeah. I'm actually and, a bit surprised about the 42%. You, you would expect, I would expect that it's more. Um, but, but who am I? I mean, I'm not, I'm not the, the expert here at all. Um, but... I would guess with all these massive changes you now see happening in, in the western part of the U.S., which are normally attributed to climate change, the more wildfires that we see, um, all the, the water problems that they have, um, the, the, the lowering of the water levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and all that is often attributed to climate change. And now we speak about this mega drought, which is part of the whole story, of course, and then it's attributed for only 42%. But who am I? You know, these people are the experts. They studied all their lives on these issues, so they should know. But yeah, I would I, I would have thought that the human impact, I mean, we are, we are warming the planet. And I would say there will be a more direct link. So I wonder, um, I wonder how this works. By the way, an interesting anecdote. I was, I was a couple of years ago, I was following the Colorado River and then I ended up in Page where you have this uh, Lake Powell dam. And, uh, there you, you see how dry that dam is, which is a problem because you need the water for California. You also need the, the electricity power that comes out. So I went to the exhibition center 
where they were um, uh, saying on these panels that you can read that the water level was now lower. So I started looking for the word climate change. So I checked all these 20 panels with information for the public. The word climate was never, ever mentioned once wow. in a whole exhibition. Wow. Um, but I understand now that at least 42% of these panels should be talking about climate change. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Anyway, it's, um, yeah, so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's alarming. Um, and, um, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, to our listeners, I promised that after about 40 minutes, people could ask questions. So if, if anybody has questions, uh, just uh, there's this, this is called call in. So you can call in by pressing on the, um, on the, on the, on the telephone button, and then you can call in if you have any, any questions for us, we will try to answer them. If we can't answer them, we can. Uh, we can just uh, pass them on to, um, uh, to, to the scientists because everything that we are saying here, we base on scientific research, uh, unlike uh, some other climate, uh, climate commenters that you see in completely different podcasts uh, <laughs> that uh, come from different countries and have a different flavor to how they talk about, uh, how they talk about climate. Um, but briefly on those, um, uh, on those mega droughts, uh, if, if you look historically, they have led to mass migration of humans uh, for, away from uh, from from drought-affected lands. And uh, you then see a significant population decline. So if you look in history, you see uh, the, the collapse of, of pre-industrial civilizations like the Anasazi in, uh, in the North American Southwest, where you can still see their amazing art and drawings. Um, and and uh, the Khmer Empire. I remember reading about uh, the Maya uh, culture. Uh, also, I also remember reading about that the Maya culture was not, and that's because of climate change. So there's quite a bit of debate about that one. I remember um, in the um, in the Durango area of Colorado, uh, where you have the 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 ancient Pueblo living on these on these highlands that made these fantastic. Uh, structures under these overhanging rocks uh, that around the year 1200 that they suddenly left. And one of the theories there is uh, is climate change um, uh, leaving a major archaeological tourist attraction uh, in the United States. If anybody's ever there in the southwest of Colorado, it's really worth going there. And you saw it in China as well. So the 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 question now is, of course. Um, if mega droughts historically have led to mass migration of humans, uh, I wonder what will happen now. We, well, what will we see yeah. in the decades to come? Let's let's hope we're we're better at solving this crisis than we've been so far. I mean, I guess you can get so far with uh, irrigation these days, can't you? But um, you're right. Looking back through history, it's not been great, is it? I've, I've been down in Central America as well. I lived there one. For a while, and the Mayan civilization looms very large in parts of you know, Mexico and so on, and, and, and Guatemala and so on. It's a total mystery as to what what caused that collapse, and it's often ascribed to a changing climate. You know, why yeah. the climate changed, though, is no, is no reason. But here we here the the red lights are blinking in our faces, aren't they? We know what's going on. Um, the mega droughts are, you know, forty two percent of it is caused by is caused by climate change. That's that's a pretty high percentage to start acting on, isn't it? We we think we we've, yeah. we've learned by now. So let's yeah, have... yeah, yeah. You would you would you? I, I'm surprised how little concern the people in California are. Maybe they are so used to ignore uh, the San Andreas fault that they say, "Well, now there's an extra danger, and we shouldn't um, we we shouldn't uh, worry about it too much." But it's um, uh, yeah, I would be worried. But th- but they are surprised that we are not worried in the Netherlands uh, too much uh, about um, about about sea level rise. So maybe it's just when uh, when you get used to a problem that you start to ignore it a little bit more. Um, I think we we always aim to keep this at about forty five minutes. We never succeed. Um, it's all my fault because I never stop. Um, but uh, let's let's uh, try to um, to end this because tomorrow we'll be back already. Um, uh, as I already briefly announced in the beginning, it will we will start three hours earlier than today, so that is noon uh, Eastern time. And we will have Charlie Weiser. Some of you that join early in this podcast will remember him 
uh, as uh, Charlie, the man helping us out when we had problems starting in the beginning, uh, when this was still a very new app. Uh, but the news of today was that there is now a kind of 2.0 version of the app available uh, on the iPhone as it was before, but now also on uh, on Android. And that an enormous amount of innovations and changes have been introduced, uh, which should lead to um, positioning this app in 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 a very special uh, very special position on the. On, on the app market in this year, because I uh, I believe that what uh, the revolution that Colin might make this year is that podcasting becomes something that every single person can just do. You don't need all kinds of expensive equipment. Uh, you only need your smartphone or starting today, you only need uh, the web application. You can just go to the website and that's it. You you don't need microphones or headphones or anything. I'm just using the the fifteen dollars uh, uh, Apple ears. Uh, what what do you call these thing? Ear earbuds. Uh, and yeah. that's all the equipment I use. And I see I'm 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 looking on the Zoom call at Alistair, and Alistair has exactly the same things. That's the only investment you make, yeah. and you probably have the thing already. So I think the 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 number of podcasts might really uh, start uh, start to grow. Now it becomes something that everybody uh, can just organize for themselves. So this is a bit similar from the movement of um, uh, putting uh, high resolution, high quality photographs on Fiverr to the introduction of Instagram, that just anybody can just take a picture of their dog or cat and throw it on Instagram. Um, that's uh, what we can do uh, with call-in. Having said that, we're not aiming for that low level of quality. We try to have a high-quality show here. So uh, join uh, join us tomorrow uh, at noon Eastern time, but uh, please also put as a recurring um, item in your calendar that every Thursday at uh, 3 o'clock Eastern time, uh, Alistair and I are running this show. So... Last words to you, maybe, Alistair. Uh, I already say goodbye to all the listeners. I leave it to you to close the, the show. Great. Well, thanks, Alex. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. Um, whenever you'd like to ask questions next time around, please, please put your hands up and um, stay safe, especially everybody who's listening in Europe. Um, if you're living down in the southwest of England, you know, stay indoors. Uh, stay safe. We don't want anybody to get hurt during this um, by this horrible storm, Eunice, which is looming. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Alex, for hosting it and letting me be on the co-host and uh, speak next week. Perfect. We will. Thanks.